0: This is the Flying Field Podcast. Welcome to this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. The Flying Field Podcast is a service of rcplaneviews.com and the Flying Field blog. Find them at www.rcplaneviews.com dot com. This is Episode 103, The Heroes Around Us, Part 2. It was produced the week of September 11th, 2011. Hello, modelers, and thanks for joining me for this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. I'm Jim Mohan. We're being teased a little in the Phoenix area as this edition gets put together. This weekend had morning temps in the low 70s, which made for really nice flying weather. I took my Easy glider Pro to the field and, and had a couple of nice, relaxing flights. I've got some repair projects in the workshop, which will also be easier to do, too, when it's not 100-plus degrees in the shop. Today, we'll take a look at some of the news and events around the RC world and then rejoin our interview we started last time with World War II B-17 pilot Byron Clark. As we finished up last time, we were listening to Byron's story, a flying a mission to Cologne dropping flying bombs. Let's get started with the news. RC Group says a review of the Hobby Lobby Rebel 70 Sport Jet. This appears to be one of several 70 millimeter EDFs that are out there right now. It has very similar dimensions to both the original Habu from Park Zone and the Dynam Meteor. I've got the Meteor and like it. I added retracts and it looks pretty good. The Rebel has a nice color scheme and the described performance sounds similar to these other EDFs. These 70mm sport jets are very popular and worth a look if you're planning to try your hand at an easy-to-assemble EDF. Next up in the news department is what will be a recurring item over the next several months, I'm sure. If you don't have the Government Relations page at the AMA website on your favorites list, you should. The AMA website is at www. Dot modelaircraft.org. You can get to the government relations page by clicking the About AMA tab at the top right hand of the page. The reason it should be on your favorites list is that it's the best source of information regarding the FAA's desire to regulate small unmanned aircraft systems, as they call it, which includes model airplanes. My thought is that one of the last things Model Aviation needs is federal government oversight, and the AMA is working hard to ensure that our views are heard. This work alone is worth your membership in the AMA. Even if you aren't a club member, you should consider being an AMA member, either at the full or park pilot level. As mentioned in the opening, we're going to rejoin my interview with Byron Clark, who, as you may remember, is a member of my local flying club and a B-17 pilot who completed a combat tour over Europe during World War II. You know, a lot of the people who'll be will be watching this, are just going to say, "Okay, let's let's ask some airplane questions here." And so, uh, as you think back on those thirty three missions, were there any that were particularly memorable for you? Well, I I think if you go to that
1: that site on the web,
0: mm-hmm,
1: uh, mm-hmm. all you have to do is go to Swampfire B seventeen, and you'll it will lead you to our homepage of of that. Uh, uh, of swamp fire. And you'll learn a lot uh, about the airplane and the crew and so forth. And you also read about <clears throat> the one mission where we dropped uh, uh, glide bombs uh, on Cologne, mm-hmm. uh, Germany. Uh, Cologne's in the Ruhr Valley, one of the uh, most heavily uh, defended part of Germany. There were just hundreds and hundreds of 88 millimeter flak guns there. And uh, <clears throat> we dropped those bombs. Uh, Somewhere around thirty miles from the, the town itself,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and they had wings on them. And I'd like I say, this is all explained. There's even pictures of them on the web. Of the, but that was kind of a memorable thing because we we, we trained with these things. They put them on the air, they're other two thousand pound bombs and with wings on them, and they hung on the bottom of the airplane. And we trained with those things so many times that I think we damaged some of them, so they spun in whenever we, some of them spun in when we turned them loose.
0: Now, is but that what they called the grapefruit? Grapefruit, yeah. Yeah, I, I think of myself as kind of a World War II history buff, and I've never heard of that. That's right. just very interesting, The kind of the first guided missile. They had some kind of gyro stabilization, yes, in, the, right? the, the gyros in it were connected to the, the vacuum system in the airplane. Okay. And we have a vacuum
1: system that sucks the air out of the boots the so they they, they, uh, they disconnected up the vacuum gyros and, and of course the gyros were spun up the whole time and when we turned the bombs loop of course the, the rubber tubes were disconnected and they were on their own, the gyros were, were uh, stabilizing the uh, Ailerons or elevators or what I can't remember mm-hmm. whatever it was on those things, but some of them did spin in and some of them landed on Cologne because I remember. When we turned, uh, the sky above Cologne uh, was absolutely black with, with flak. Hmm. And uh, they probably wondered where those bombs came from. It you know, yeah, th- was a good place th- not to be then, that <laughs> yeah. night. Huh? So yeah. it, it, I, I guess the fact that it, it was one of those experimental things, probably people say now, well, this is crazy, but it was an idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, they picked our group to drop the bombs. I think uh, outside of that, uh, the other one was a long a very long mission to Marienburg, Germany. It was clear over in East Prussia, and it was an 11-hour flight. Well, we ran out of fuel on the way back and landed at a fighter base on the Ipswich on the bay, on the uh, shore of uh, uh, the North Sea there. But uh, we weren't completely out of fuel, but uh, mm-hmm. just about. And uh, I, I hate to say this because we don't run, the, we don't fight our wars uh, nowadays the, the way they did then. Uh, but I remember the colonel saying at the end of the briefing, <coughs> this was Easter Sunday, this mission I'm talking about, and he says, We haven't time, so we'll get them when they're coming out of church. Now you don't you wouldn't hear anything like that nowadays. It's politically mm-hmm. totally incorrect nowadays. But that's the way we fought the war in those days. And that's the what. That's the way it was. And I, you know, I don't mean to temper it or warp it in one way or another. That's what the colonel said. Mm-hmm. So the idea, and you can, you can imagine uh, a, a northern bomb site was uh, pretty accurate, but if you name a uh, aim the bomb site at the railroad station downtown, and and the formation. Of, it's spread out over a mile and everybody <laughs> drops their bombs at the same time, uh, you're carpet bombing the sure, city. Sure. So the, the Germans did that to London and Coventry and, and so they started it and uh, we finished it. Well, it's mission- a shame that uh, you know, all those innocent people get killed but it's happening today and I guess it happens in every war the war is a terrible thing.
0: I mentioned to you earlier that uh, I was a bomber crew member about 35 years after you were and yeah. uh, And I remember that crew members like to play practical jokes on one another, and sometimes we would get in trouble. Uh, As you think back, were there any particular times where uh, you had some fun with one another, or maybe got yourselves into a jam that had to be bailed out of? I don't know. Those guys were shooting crap all the time, and I I
1: didn't do much of that. But I will say the one you I've heard this before happening that the relief tube is in the bomb bay in the back end of that airplane. To, and if you have to urinate, well, it's a little funnel there. But it goes down a tube, and on the outside of the airplane, there's a tube that, that's face to facing the strip. Well, if you turn it around the other way, he's going to get it in the face. <laughs> so that. That happened on occasion. From time to time.
0: <laughs> uh, so, so you wanted to make sure the crew chief was happy and not mad at you so he wouldn't like turn that baby around at the absolutely, last minute right? Absolutely, right. right,
1: yeah. <laughs> and we had a great crew chief. Uh, that, that's mainly, uh, uh, Nick is mentioned in that uh, website. Uh, Nick, uh, I'd like to say, is still alive. He, he's 90 years old, had uh, last, uh this year, early this year, or late last year. He lives in Bellevue, Washington, and uh, he and these men <coughs> kept our airplane airworthy, and they worked. At, they they also uh, should uh, have their hats taken off too, because they worked at night and in the rain and everything else, keeping the airplane airworthy, patching the holes in it, and doing what they had to be done. Mm-hmm. Whenever we got, when we brought the airplane back to them. And so you see in that website that, that our airplane, Swampfire, was the first one to fly 100 missions uh, without an abort. Mm-hmm. And that's not for us to brag about, that's for the ground crew, maintenance people, too. For, uh, so they did a great job. And uh, I talked with him occasionally, and uh, I, I guess I'm here because of uh, Nick DeSalvo.
0: Now, when those massive formations of B-17s would fly over Europe, um, they would fly in tight formations. You know, the belief was that all of the guns would be able to protect you all from the, from the fighters. Tell me a little bit about what it was like to fly in one of those really big formations. You know, you you you
1: concentrated on flying off the wing from the guy, or if you were uh, a leader in a squadron or an element why you... You concentrated on keeping the airplane in its, in its position. It was hard work because the airplane, of course, doesn't have power steering. And there were, there were times when we got in weather and the, the formation would disappear. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're sitting there in weather for half an hour flying off of it, just the wing, just one airplane, as you see. And amazingly, you'd pop out in the clear and everybody would still be there. It was incredible to to see that, Uh, even to us, for that that to happen. But it was hard work, the captain flew formation, Uh, when he got tired, why, the co-pilot flew Mm -hmm. formation. Uh, Occasionally there were mid-air collisions, uh, when, uh, you know, uh, you would lose your, what do you call it? Vertigo. You'd get vertigo and slide off into somebody else, and I I don't know how many airplanes uh, 8th Air Force lost on account of mid-air collisions, but I'm sure uh, there were many, and they also lost uh, uh, to collision during the forming process, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because all the 8th Air Force uh, bases were in a very small area of the eastern side of England, and when when you all took off and you have a thousand airplanes up there milling around, the the, the leader uh, of the formation, would, would fire off a flare that uh, in, indicated he was the leader of your group. So if it was a red, red flare, you were looking for a red, red, or mm-hmm. maybe it was red, green, red. And these would be continually there. The, the fire chute is missing out of that airplane, but there was a place up the top where you could stick the flare gun in there and shoot the flares out. And so this is what you looked for. And uh, so you circled around a beacon, a radio beacon, that's that's what uh, what they call a buncher, and it uh, all form on the leader. Hmm. And sometimes this took uh, maybe thirty or forty-five minutes for everybody to get together, and then of course they had a specific time where they wanted you to cross the coast so that you wouldn't be mixed up with other people,
0: so they you'd be strung out from, you know, as far as you could see, uh, B-17s. Well that was interesting because I always read about that, it was like it was altitude and timing. Was the the main components of, of gathering those mass formations, and, and right. it just struck me as as amazing that you'd put all those airplanes, you know, without radar and without the kinds of nav aids that we have today, and, and you'd still get a bunch of them out, yeah. out over the, uh, the out of the channel and,
1: into <laughs> and you know, it was amazing. It just happened, and you know, we would we would go to the briefing, and that's all we'd know. They would say which this is the flare to look for, and this is the time we're across the coast. And you don't worry about that because you just follow the leader. Uh And in in most cases, the the leader, when you saw the leader open up the bomb bay doors, well, your bomb bay doors went open too. All you do is flick the switch. Mm -hmm. And when you saw the bombs fall from the leader, well... Uh, we used to call him uh, the, the toggle air because he hit a toggle. Sure. So <laughs> if you weren't the leader, it wasn't a real important job out there in No, that, so. that's true. In <laughs> most cases, you could probably, I, I don't like to say it because I'm not, I don't mean to denigrate the bombardiers, but in uh, a lot of missions, you could have got along without the bombardier. Because there was an, uh, a, a gizmo in an airplane called an intervalometer, and you could set it for one second, two seconds, five seconds. And you'd hear click, click, click as the bombs left, Mm -hmm. rather than a salvo. So
0: it depends on how they wanted to drop the bombs. It's the way you set the intervalometer. Well, after the war, you did a lot of flying. You were airline pilot for a a lot of time. As you think back and as our conversation here comes to a close, what was your your favorite airplane? What did you enjoy flying the most? I think the Lockheed Electric was,
1: because it was... uh, it's not because of its dependability, because you could do anything with it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The airplane, would, uh, it was just amazing. You could uh, New York to, I mean, to Boston, to LaGuardia, New York. You could come over to LaGuardia at ten thousand feet, southwest bound, make a circle and land to the northwest. Mm-hmm. The airplane would come down like a Simonized anvil. I mean, if you did, the, you know, and and then once you got it on the ground, all you had to do was slip the engines into reverse, and the air, you know, I mean, the people if they were strapped in, it'd be in the front end of the airplane that would stop, and and getting off was the same way. It was uh, it was incredible the way that airplane
0: would perform. Hmm, that's amazing. Well, Aaron, uh, is there anything I should have asked? Is there anything that you'd like to say or talk about that I uh, haven't gotten to?
1: I think I shot off my mouth enough. <laughs> no, I think you've done quite well at getting a rough idea of
0: what went over there.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: but no, I think you did a pretty good job, Jim. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. it was uh, it was great hearing the stories? I like I say, I, I read it. I you know watch movies about it. But then to actually have the opportunity to talk to somebody who who lived it, who's a fellow club member. It's just, it's been great. Thanks so much. Well, I appreciate you having me. It was my pleasure to
1: do my part in whacking Adolf Hitler and Mussolini.
0: That brings us to the close of this edition of the Flying Field Podcast. You can find the show notes at www.flyingfieldblog.rcplaneviews.com. This was episode 103. I'm Jim Mohan. Happy modeling and fly safe.